The Barroom Network presents two fired up Bears fans. They are ready to rumble on the Bear Debate. This is David Kaplan from the Cap J Hood Show on ESPN 1000 and NBC Sports Chicago. Now get ready to listen and watch the Bulls 101 with Chris and Laro. Take that, Sparkles. What's up, guys? Welcome in to Bulls 101. My name is Chris Hominson here with my guy, Laro Golden, on this beautiful Saturday evening. And uh, we're, we're just excited to be here. The preseason is done with. We're ready to start the regular season next week. And we've got a special guest for you guys tonight. But first of all, how, you, how are you doing, Laro? Uh, how's everything going for you? Man, everything's good, man. I can't complain. Um, just another Hoops After Dark episode that we're uh, going to have some fun tonight, man. Talk some hoops. Yeah, I got I got my friend Zach Levine finally. With him. <laughs> He's here with us tonight. More importantly, we have a special guest tonight. My absolute favorite sports writer, uh, Chris Herring. He used to work the Knicks beat for the Wall Street Journal. Was with Five Thirty Eight. Is now with Sports Illustrated, as he deserves. And he's got a new book coming out too uh, about the '90s Knicks. We'll talk a little bit about that. But wanted to welcome Chris Herring to uh, some Hoops After Dark. Chris, how you doing? Thanks for joining us tonight. Appreciate you coming on. It was such a kind intro, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, I never take that sort of thing for granted. Uh, so thank you. I'm, I'm doing well. How are you guys? Man, I'm doing well, man. Um, I, I'm excited because 
I'm on, uh, I listen to a lot of sports radio in Chicago. Um, and I've, I've heard you on with uh, Lawrence before and it's, it's, it's Lawrence Holmes. And it's, it was fun listening to you guys kind of, um, the chemistry you guys have, you know what I mean? So, um, I'm happy to get a chance to talk to you about the bulls and your book and just learning more about you. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, Lawrence and I, uh, we didn't go to high school together, but he went to the same high school that I did, uh, which I swear, man, I mean, like, not to hype Homewood Flossmore up too much, but it's really hard to find a high school that has a, a TV station that students can work at, a radio station that students can work at, and as a school newspaper. And I did all three, and I think a lot of folks that you see that are repping HF, uh, Jason Benetti, yeah. A lot of the folks that do the local news here in Chicago, um, it's kind of impressive how many of them did all three or at least did two of them. And I think it helps a ton. You know, I, I, I know I did radio and thought for a minute, I was like, maybe I want to do that. Never. I don't have a face for TV, so that was never going to happen. But uh, but the radio side of it always intrigued me. I really like writing, though. So uh, I stuck with that one for now. But uh, but it's it, it's really cool to have that relationship with Lawrence. And it's funny because. He and I only basically talk on radio. We had a flight together one time. We talked a little bit there. We were randomly flying to Alabama the same weekend <laughs> that he was graduating. And uh, I, was, I was going to go to a graduation of a friend's down there. But uh, you're not going to find too many people are better than that dude. Just really nice guy. That's awesome. Well, we appreciate the fact that you are writing and you chose writing because uh, I've, I encountered you probably six or seven years ago while you were still working doing the Knicks beat. And... I had no interest in the Knicks, but I just loved, I loved the way you interacted with, uh, with people on Twitter. I loved your writing and you got me interested in the Knicks uh, just because I wanted to read about uh, whatever you were writing about. I knew I wanted to read it. So I really enjoyed to watch you kind of get a bigger national stage. And um, I, obviously being from Chicago, we always count on you. I feel like <laughs> tell these national guys, like how, you know, this is really what's going on with the bulls in Chicago. And so we, we really appreciated um, you're writing, and I know. Before we get to your book, I I, I saw that you were at the at the Chicago Sky game last night, and uh, they had a big blowout win. So I wanted to ask you, what was it like being in in the building? Was you know, it, it was one of the most filled arenas they've had in quite a while, I, I would imagine. Uh, I think I've been to their last either four or five games now, um, and <laughs> I mean, yesterday was so surreal winning by 36 points you know the biggest margin in WNBA finals history and I turned to my friend at one point I was like uh I know I'm getting greedy here but they're one win away from winning a title I hope they win the next game but I hope that it's tension involved uh and I don't know that I want to win like the the feeling obviously you'll win a championship that you know happens once in a lifetime and sometimes never but I was like man it, I, I kind of want it to be more entertaining than just like, you know, maybe they can win by 15 or eight or something. <laughs> 36. Like, I don't, I don't want them to clinch. I also don't want them to clinch in Phoenix. I'd like them to do it here. So if they win by 98, that's fine. But uh, yeah, that, I mean, that was the reaction that I had yesterday was that they won by so much that it was not, it was kind of boring toward the end. I mean, they were doing the wave, you know, and I went to Michigan oh, where, no. <laughs> you know, 110,000 people doing the wave. They generally only break that out when Michigan's up by 30 or 40. And you're not used to going to basketball games where a WNBA team, they only play 40 minutes. So to win a game by 36 is kind of wild. 
but the, quite frankly, they've looked like the better team the whole series. Um, they were playing better than Phoenix in Phoenix. So you did have a little bit of a feeling like when they come to Chicago, they might really kind of open things up a little bit. I didn't expect it to be that. Uh, but proud of them, happy for them, and uh, hoping that they can bring it home tomorrow. Yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> I am one of many people in this city, and as you know, growing up here, that loves the game of basketball. And um, if, you, if you've paid attention or kept up with basketball uh, locally, like there's no way you don't know who Candace Parker is, um, especially around here. So I just kind of wanted to know in your own words, like what do you, what do you think Candace means to this, this, this finals run, this, this potential championship? And I, I just really interested to hear it in, in, in your words. What do you think it means? So I think she, first of all, she's still solid uh, is probably the word I would use where, I mean, quite frankly, I think the thing that stands out to me watching her play in person is like how, uh, this will sound bad, like how stiff she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she's had so many surgeries, yeah. um, but just how skilled she is, despite just how physically kind of beaten down she's probably been over the years through those procedures. Um, you know, she, she's not like a fluid moving yeah. athlete the way that she was, which tells you like how dominant she was before. She really had to deal with a lot of this stuff, but still can shoot, still can go into the post and get you buckets. But I mean, I think the biggest thing is like, look who they've been playing. They've had Brittany Griner to defend this round, which by the way, speaking of people and the way they look in person, I always was of the opinion that she was like six nine and like real thin. She has like size to her. Like yeah. you, you look at her legs on the court and they're like tree trunks. And I, that was not something that I realized until I was watching her in person. So, I mean, Griner, and, and Griner has obviously had her moments in the series, but that, Jean-Claude Jones, and, and the yes. fact that a lot of times they, you know, in that last series, they weren't even necessarily having to double the MVP uh, because Candace could kind of hold it on her own. Ezra Stevens was able to do that on her own. So, I mean, she's she's still really, really good on defense. She's right behind Sloot every night as far as the assists go. Um, she's just a pretty complete player, man. And, uh, mm-hmm. So I, what I will say is this. I was having this conversation with someone over lunch today. I totally get the narrative. I totally get that it's going to be about her as far as, you know, if and when this guy win this thing, because it'll be that she came home, you know, she yeah. made good for Chicago. She's also not the best player on this team, and that's okay. But I, you know, I, I hope that everybody else can kind of get their shine. At this point, there's no way that Kalia Copper doesn't deserve MVP for the finals run if they win. Uh, Courtney Vandersloot, you go to the games, you know, she's the last one announced in the starting lineup. She's the best passer, I would say, in the world. And I don't mean just women's, I mean in the world. Um, she's just incredible and, you know, has been a rock for them all season. You've got all sorts of shooters on the court for them. Dolson has changed her body and still been one of the game's most lethal screeners. It is such a team effort. And that was why they kicked Phoenix's ass last night, is it was a total, total team effort and has been this whole series. So I hope that the other women get their shine too, because it's yes. not just her. I get that she's going to be the storyline. I think the WNBA does a piss poor job of marketing the other people. Yeah. Um, I think that they kind of have to feel like they have to really hang everything on their stars. And I get that Candace is the name, but man, they've got so much other talent and Candace is a huge part of it. When they were, when she was hurt, they struggled. Um, 
it's why their record was 500 as opposed to being more in line with what you would expect out of a champion. So I, I by no means am I downplaying how great she still is yeah. and the legend, but I, I just want everybody else to get their credit too, especially Copper, who, you know, might be my favorite player at this point. She's just so much fun to watch. I just I'm glad you brought that uh, her, her name up because uh, I went to a game in person um, with Celine from Bulls Gold. I'm, I'm, you were you appeared on there. Sure. Um, and man, Kalia attacking the basket. She's just so relentless. And um, another thing, too, you brought up was uh, Courtney. I I've seen some good passers in person, I've, I, I, I feel like. But just the way the ball is always where it needs to be like last night on the break didn't did not even look like you know how sometimes guys players look and then they'll she didn't even look in the ball literally no ball was right where it needs to be dropped it off on the dime didn't need nobody right in front um i, I just love watching the sky play uh sky team play and i Man, I just hope that this city starts to um, buy in because, uh, sorry, Chris, long-winded, but um, I, I saw a tweet from Annie Costable that I think it was last series um, that there was, it was only her for media availability. Yep. Um, and there was no other news, um, you know, no, no one else was there. And I, I really felt some type of way about that because that we this basketball team that basketball team is unreal it's great synergy they play together they're tough i just understand i just don't understand it you know and um that that just kind of like made me feel some type of way when i heard when i saw that tweet from andy costable for sure and well as as chris said it's you know a lack of marketing they you know they only have a couple names and it's yeah, it's, it's something that needs to change, but I feel like the momentum is starting. I feel like it's starting to go in the right direction. And I think you see a lot more NBA players and people who cover the NBA talking more about the WNBA as they should and, and appreciating it and kind of promoting the game. And I know you get the people on Twitter that just have silly responses to that kind of stuff, but it's, it's embarrassing <laughs> to be fair, but um, you watch a game though. I, I, I've watched a couple of these games that this guy I've done in the playoffs and just phenomenal. I mean, it's it's great, great basketball. And Chris, you're right. I think uh, Vandersloot's just phenomenal passer, and it's just been really fun to watch and, and get into a little bit more. Um, I didn't really grow up watching sports a bunch, and I've only been a Bulls fan for you know my adult life basically. And so getting into the WNBA and watching the sky has been really a, a, an enjoyable experience. And I, I hope they I hope they take it. Uh, I hope they take the next one. As you said, you don't want to win in Phoenix, but. Uh, I'm, I'm happy yeah. either way. I'm learning that we got to, we, we can't be greedy. I can't be greedy. <laughs> Don't tempt that, the basketball gods, Chris. Yeah. To say that I have a problem with them winning by 36, I guess I'm being somewhat facetious, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they, they, they look so much better than Phoenix and you just hope that they stay healthy for another game or two, you know, just to yeah. get the job done. Cause they, they certainly deserve it. Um, and it's been amazing to see that. And, and it been quite frankly, it was amazing to see them sell out. The last game, you, you know, without a doubt, the clincher, hopeful, hopeful clincher will be sold out. And they've, they've long deserved that. So it's amazing to see it. You know, I have friends that are here covering 
the the finals and they were saying like you know i cover games in all the WNBA arenas i've never really heard game ops like this uh you know just how much fun it is and how lively it is seems like every night chicago's got a new halftime performer um they had the dude that did the cha-cha slide do halftime <laughs> and i you know i think he's a chicago dude it's like it's incredible how many chicago performers they have to do these halftime performances and it's like they're happy to do it proud to do it um it's a, it's just a special place chicago and you know deserves a team like this people will 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 kind of weep and cry and moan over what the bulls haven't accomplished there's another good team in town like yeah. you don't pay attention to just them and uh and i hope people wake the hell up to that because it's it's a it's a great league it has its problems with marketing and different things but when you watch a game like game two that was just incredible and in overtime and you know down to the wire and you know, crazy dramatic, and people will still say, oh, you know, it's boring. It's like, what are you watching? I know you get your occasional 36-point game the first time it's ever happened, but uh, most of the time I sit and watch it, it's that, or it's, you know, Dierica Hamby hitting a half-court shot to knock this guy out of the playoffs, you know, at the buzzer. So it's just, it's, every time I've really sat and watched it for an extended amount of time, you get something good out of it. That's what I found. Well, I kind of you you I had a question for you, but you kind of answered it for me because I was actually coming into this. Um, I was talking to Salim and a couple other guys um, about this, like in terms of Courtney Courtney Vandersloot's passing ability, um, and you answered it honestly because I was going to ask you, like in your lifetime of watching the game, uh, of you know watching it, knowing what's going on and things like that, um, like where does she rank? And you you answered it for me. You think she's the best passer, you know, in the world, and I, I would. Totally agree with that. Um, I, I think I, just the feel she has for for where the ball needs to be on, on different cuts, or just I just she's just so fun to watch, man. And for me, like I, something I learned as well, like I didn't know that uh, Coach Wade was cousins to Dwayne Wade. I, I didn't I didn't know that uh, until the other night of. Uh, uh, I think it was that they were showing Candace when she was doing NBA um, on TNT and she had said that. But for me, I, I guess my next question is, what is for the sky, right? What do you think? Do you think a finals run or, or getting a finals championship will wake this, this city up at least to, to being more at the games and showing more love to this team? I hope so. I mean, I think, I think memories are short, though. You know, I just think to, you know, when the White Sox won their title, that, you know, their games were full for a while. But I think stuff generally reverts back to the mean, you know, and, and goes back to what it was before. Um, you know, you're hopeful. Obviously, you know, I think, honestly, I remember when they signed Parker, I was on Cloud Nine. Mm -hmm. tweeted about that thing that very day. I was like, oh, I'm getting season tickets. I didn't actually follow through with it. And I remember you know, part of the reason there were two things. One, I was still knee deep and trying to, you know, finish a book, which the timing wasn't great for me. But beyond that, my question was kind of like, do I want to pull the trigger and buy tickets right now if there might be restrictions on how many people can be at a game, how late in the season it's going to be okay and safe to go to a game? So I think it's kind of on some level, it's unfortunate that it's kind of we're in these weird times too, yeah. where, you know, people might be a little bit less likely to go to a game. Obviously they're able to sell out uh, for a finals run, but when stuff goes back to being normal, we're talking about regular season games, how many people will come out? 
Uh, I hope so. I mean, that, that's really the only answer I can definitively have is that I really hope so. You know, they've got a local star, a, a local legend. They've got, you know, all-star talent around her. Yeah. I would hope that that's enough, but I, you know, I, I do feel like memories are kind of short here. Um, but you hope it starts something. And I mean, I, I, I've been on Twitter before when, you know, I've, I've been to a lot of WNBA games when I teach at Northwestern, we make a point to try to take our students to live sporting events so that they can get experience covering games. We take them to Sky Games, uh, which I, you know, I like doing that because it's kind of a way to, to show them the game and get them involved a little bit. And also to give the players, you know, more reporters. You were talking about Annie before, yeah. just, you know, more reporters that they can answer questions from and stuff like that. And similarly, uh, over the summer, because, you know, the, the bulk of their season takes place over the summer, um, you have a lot of uh, day campers that will come and watch the game. They'll have like a camp day where all the kids from the city camps come in and watch. And, you know, they normally play that game closer to like 12 or noon so that the kids can watch and still get that in and then go home before the end of the day. And it is a little bit unruly because you've got like a thousand, fifteen hundred kids just screaming their heads off, yeah. uh, you know, with their high pitched yells and everything like that with their high pitched voices. And, I remember one time seeing someone tweet about watching a game like that on television and hearing it. They're like, what's that noise? Why would they bring all these kids there? And it's like the hope is to expose these kids to a game before they have a really nasty prejudice that women aren't as good or women aren't as talented or women aren't as worthy of watching. And the hope is that you hook these people so that they become fans in a way where they don't even have to pay for the game necessarily. They're just there to watch and they don't know to have a, a, a preconceived notion or a disposition where they're just not going to like it and they just get to have fun. And you just hope that this run will have hooked people in a way, you know, maybe there are prejudices, but I know, you know, I, I've got friends that have come along with me to these games lately um, that I was already going to um, because they, you know, I think there's always a hype beast mentality for some people where you just want to see what's going on and what, what everything is about. Who cares why you end up there? Just go and you see it and that's a good product and they win and then you hope that makes somebody want to go more so you, but you would also hope that at a certain point it's not totally contingent on whether they win or not the bears will sell out the cubs have sold out for a long worthy of uh you know of, of all that attention that they got people are loyal with them i get that you know that WNBA is newer and this guy have just now been in the city for the last couple of years they were in rosemont but you just hope that it hooks somebody, and uh, and and I'm hopeful that it'll do that. I don't know, but I'm, I'm really hopeful. Chris, you mentioned um, memories are short, so I wanted to to kind of transition into a lot of the memories that you've compiled into a book now. That uh, it's it's called Blood in the Garden: The Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. So I know you've put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears yourself into this book, and and talked to a lot of different people. And first of all, I want to. You know, I want to ask, how does it feel to think that you're going to be a New York Times bestselling author in like three months? <laughs> that is a totally loaded question. Um, <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I am. My, my goodness. Uh, it's happening. I, I really hope so. You know, it, it, it's so weird the way it works now with that process. It's somewhat out of my hands. I'm trying not to be the annoying ass dude that posts about his book and begs people to buy his book every day. I'd also be lying if I said I don't care at all about that because now I feel like it's 
you're, you've got publicity people that ingrain that in you and update you on your sales numbers and how stuff is doing and tell you, oh, you're, you know, your book is outselling this, you know, for the same point in time. It's a little bit crazy, but it's like now I've, I feel like the vain part of me cares about it. I've never seen myself as this great writer um, in terms of prose, in terms of uh, the flowy writing and everything like that. I think I have a different style of writing. Now, I, I will say this book for people who have gotten used to my work with the way I write Wall Street Journal, ESPN, 538, Sports Illustrated. This is different because, you know, I'm writing stuff that might be more analytical for basketball stories. This is just a book where you want to kind of get across how special this team was, how unusual this team was. So it's kind of more of a straightforward style where I'm trying to basically, you're trying to hold someone's interest for 300 pages. So it's very different. You're, you're, you're trying to show off your reporting chops and the best anecdotes that you've got. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, just like I, I am with the sky and their, and their crowd and everything else. I'm hopeful to make the list. If I don't, I, you know, life will go on. Um, I'm mostly hopeful that people will enjoy the book. I'm mostly hopeful for the people that read it that are diehard Nick fans that feel like they know everything there is to know already, that those folks learn a lot too. Because the last thing I want, I would say, you know, if I had to pick one thing between the Times bestseller list and having diehard Nick fans feel like they walked away knowing a lot more than they started with, I would pick the latter because you don't ever want to work on something for two and a half or three years and then feel like someone says, I knew that already. Like that would be... Mm awful and i you know interviewing 200 some people and not only interviewing them but you know the, the 640 hours i spent on the phone with them you know logging all those interviews and, and transcribing all that and then trying to figure out what to use of it and how to structure it where to order it um you know how to make sense of whether someone was lying or someone was embellishing the truth you know and and also trying to keep people's interest trying to figure out which stuff people do know already and not to play that up too much, try to figure out which stuff people don't know at all and has never been out there before and how to amplify that just a bit without being too showy about it. It's a really hard process that took this long. I didn't take a leave of absence to write the book, a book leave, um, you know, and so I'm trying to watch enough basketball to stay relevant and write an informative story here or there while doing that. So I, I'm hoping that this is worthy of how those teams played and how those fans felt and how even the opposing fan bases felt about how much they might have hated those teams. I want it to come across that they were an unusual team, that basketball history would have been probably a little bit different without them. Um, and that sounds uh, probably over the top to say that, but I don't think it is. It's not that It's not that maybe the Bulls don't win championships if the Knicks aren't there. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the rules and the way the Bulls played and the fact that the Knicks made them bleed repeatedly. I've got one game in particular where the Knicks sent three different Bulls players. Keep in mind, Magic Johnson had HIV. Um, and when he had it, the league started to worry all of a sudden, well, what if someone starts bleeding? We can't have them playing. So that was where that rule came from, that you had to sideline guys and have them treated by a doctor to stop them from bleeding. That was the year that happened when Magic left the league because of HIV. So that same year, the Knicks and the Bulls played against each other in the playoffs, and the Knicks sent Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and John Paxson to the sideline all in the same quarter because they were bleeding, because the Knicks just were knocking the shit out of them. So, like, that, I want the book to come across how physical those teams were, to understand how physical they were through my writing, 
to understand how much teams hated them through my writing. And uh, I feel like I did a disservice in taking this long to do it. If that stuff doesn't come across, if the book's not good, if the details aren't crisp, if it's not teaching people something. So I, I, that's what I care about most. But I, I obviously hope that, you know, the book is successful. I obviously hope that, you know, at some point, maybe there there's film interest in it, documentary interest, which I think there will be. But uh, I absolutely hope for those things. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat vain in that sense. But uh, you don't want to work on something for that long and then say you don't care how it does. Of course not. Well, obviously, and you can expect the Bulls 101 bump that you'll get, you know, all of our millions of fans uh, will help, <laughs> help sell a few more copies for you. But no, you're right, because that's it's definitely what you expect and, and what you've worked for and what you've earned. You know, so yeah. sorry, Larry, I cut you off. No, 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 man. Everything you just said was definitely needed to say needed to be said. Um, but I guess for for me, what I want to ask you about is uh, growing up uh, a, a Bulls fan, right? Like you, you grew up a Bulls fan. Um, so what I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is there anything that's not in the book um, that that didn't make the cut, you know, to go into the book? Is there anything that that you learned about this other than what you just said about the, the, the bleeding and things like that. But is there anything else that um, came up? You're like, wow, that I didn't know anything about that uh, with this team. About the Knicks or about, yeah, about the Knicks. I'm sorry. About oh, the I, oh my God. I mean, I, I'll put it this way. Um, I, 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 at the end of all this, like I said, at least 650, probably closer to 700 hours of interviews. There was a couple times where my computer wasn't working and I couldn't record them with my computer. So I, you know, I had to take them down by hand or, or what have you. But um, I mean, there are so many people that just tell you stuff that you might not have a place for, or there's not like a clear way to put it. And so I, I had a whole document that I just labeled cutting room floor of all the best details I had that like I couldn't find a clear way to get into the book. Yeah. And I decided to have a, a phone call with my book editor just to kind of go one by one through those things to say like, look, I feel like I can live without this being in the book, but maybe you can't, you know, you let me know how you feel about it. And, you know, if need be, maybe I'll tell my book agent and he can kind of give thought to whether or not he feels like these need to be in the book in some way, shape or form. So I think when I finished that, there were like a hundred things on there. Like I'm not exaggerating with that number. And, you know, a lot of them, I mean, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, Riley, um, <laughs> Peter Vesey was telling me that Pat Riley basically almost got fired from NBC before he fired my beauty strong word, but like they almost were ready to let go of him during his gap year when he went from between the Lakers to the Knicks because basically he was so tight-lipped with everything where they would bring him on to analyze the games and, you know, just the NBA in general. But he was so kind of on the prowl for a job that he wouldn't critique anybody and wouldn't say anything mm. as anything. And so, you know, the idea that the NBC sports president was like, you got to give us something. And if you can't, we'll just find somebody else. Like we get that you're trying to protect the image and you don't want to piss anybody off. And so I actually was looking at a clip yesterday where he like would not say a thing about the Knicks because he very much wanted that job. And it was pretty funny because Bob Costas was kind of baiting him to say something and he wouldn't say anything. So there's that. Another anecdote with Riley. Um, there was a moment where I guess Greg Anthony was a little bit foolish at times. He left He he left a loaded gun somehow in the weight room when he's lifting weights. And while he was doing it, like he obviously left it there and 
the film coordinator, one of the assistant coaches, came across it, and I guess he knew that Greg carried a gun, or there's something about it that kind of denoted that it was Greg's gun. So the film coordinator took it and was like going to bring it to Riley to tell him that you know Greg left the gun in the locker room or the weight room. So he brings the gun into Riley's office, and Riley would always watch film in like a dark, dark room in a dark office. He just wanted no lights on except for the film itself. So this assistant coach walks into Riley's office with a gun and Riley like steps back because he's afraid that he's going to shoot him. So there was that. Um, the story that I was not going to include at all that my editor was like, you have to find a way to put that in. I'll try to tell it quickly. The Knicks had their first annual uh, youth basketball camp for, you know, for youth campers. Um, and I've seen, seen those camps before. They advertise, they get advertised. They almost never have, you know, when, when the Bulls had Tip Thibodeau, it was never going to be like a Derrick Rose or a Noah. It was going to be, you know, a Ronnie Brewer. It was going to be, a, you know, I don't even think you'd have a Boozer or a Rip Hamilton or something like that. It was going to be someone like off the bench or someone that, they recognize, but not one of the stars. You can't convince the stars to do that for the money that it costs and the time that it takes. So in 1992, a good example of someone like that would have been Anthony Mason. He was not really an established guy yet. And he was a local New Yorker. You know, the money would be significant to somebody like him who didn't have a guaranteed contract yet. So they, they got uh, Anthony Mason to agree to come to the camp for a day for $1,500. Uh, they got him a limo to go pick him up and come out to the camp. He comes out to the camp as his limo pulls up. Um, the kids go crazy because it's his limo and, you know, they know that there's a player in there and he rolls down his window. So the kids go crazy again because they recognize him. He's, you know, essentially kind of a sixth man, seventh man on that roster in 1991. So the kids are excited, but then Mason refuses to get out of the limo. He refuses to get out for about 15, 20 minutes, to which point the, the administrative director for the next during those years, Ed Tapscott, who had, paid the money and, you know, paid the invoice for Mason to come in the first place. He's like, Mace, why are you not getting out of the limo? Mason tells him, I'm refusing to get out. I'm not going to. And Ed Tapscott asked him why. He said, because it can't be for 1500 anymore. It's got to be for two grand flat. And Mace is like, okay. Or I'm sorry, Ed Tapscott is like, okay, what? Like, we've already agreed on this. We agreed on this weeks ago. Why are you just now telling me this? He was like, well, I've basically got you over a barrel. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to disappoint the kids? So he says, I don't even have that much money on me to give you, but I'll try to go send somebody. Like, what choice do I have? So he sends one of his assistants to go to the ATM to get extra money. Mace is satisfied with that. So Mace gets out of the limo. Mace plays with the kids a little bit, scrimmages. But Mace was someone that wasn't capable of turning, like, his competitiveness on and off. So he ended up playing, like, too physically with them, and he ended up breaking a kid's nose by accident during the scrimmage. <clears throat> It's like a nine, 10 year old kid. The kid gets knocked out cold. Everybody's freaking out. The Knicks people are freaking out because massive lawsuit on the way. Um, except the kid, you know, finally regains consciousness. He wakes up. Mason's hovered over him. And the kid just breaks out this massive smile from the ground and, you know, asks Mason if he'll sign his bloody t shirt. Mason obliges. Um, and the Knicks feel fortunate to avoid a lawsuit. But then as everything is ending and Mason is hopping back in the limo to go home, he said, well, by the way, 
I, I might as well tell you the reason that I wanted the extra $500. Uh, I'm going to go have the limo driver take my mom to the mall after he drops me off, and then my mom will go shopping. That's what I want the extra money for. And he just drives off. And I mean, it's like kind of just typical Anthony Mason of just making life living hell for a lot of people. Um, I spent a ton of time talking to people around him in and out of his life, not just teammates. Like I probably talked to a good 15 or 20 people that had nothing to do, you know, that weren't teammates at all, but were people that he grew up with people that he was college roommates with, people that are college teammates of his, people that ran the program that he played at in college and talked about how he almost got kicked out of school for repeatedly visiting the girls' dorm when it was off limits and people that, whose cars he crashed and people that covered for his crimes to make sure that he didn't get in trouble. Like wow. any, any number of people that I talked to that have never spoken to the media before. So there is so much stuff of Mason's that I wasn't going to put in the book that then my editor said, you have to find a spot for that. So rearrange the book to make spots for it. Um, I'm trying to, you're worried. You're worried that Knicks fans are going to learn something after what you just told me. <laughs> I mean, well, that, one, that, that does make the book, but I mean, like, I'm not worried about that. What I said is that I, I was worried about it initially. And that's why the book took so long. It's like, I refuse to just turn in something that everybody knows already the mason chapter most of it is yeah. stuff that's never been reported and it's Amazing. and it's one of the longest it's one of the two longest chapters and, wow. the, and the don nelson stuff is nuts too i mean he was there for 55 games i think i took i take about 59 games and his tenure was wild as hell like all of it was and uh <laughs> i can't I wait to so, read this <laughs> so it's i mean it's just it's i mean there's so much stuff there was a game they played against the bulls this does make the book um where uh, Dennis Scott was horrendous for the Knicks for like the 15 games he played for them or whatever. Um, he was essentially John Starks' replacement after they traded for Latrell Sprewell. Um, but Dennis Scott was like woefully out of shape as he often mm -hmm. was even going back to college. Happy about how out of shape he was. He's not happy about how out of shape Marcus Camby was. A lot of guys because it was the lockout season. So the, the Bulls fresh off losing Michael – Bill, Scotty, and Dennis, horrendous team. I, I think they ended up just annihilating the Knicks somehow here in Chicago. Uh, and the Knicks only scored like 66 points. And so they got back on the plane. And Jeff Van Gundy is like very, very staunch. Do not have wild outbursts on the plane sort of person, particularly after bad losses like that where, you know, they've scored five points, I think, in one of the quarters that the Knicks did that night. Um, just like a historically bad quarter, historically bad offensive performance. So anyway, you know, some of the guys were still joking around on the flight afterwards. And after they landed, Jeff Van Gundy just unilaterally decided to waive Dennis Scott. He did not have a conversation with the general manager. He did not ask anyone's permission. He was just like, fuck it. And he did it to send the message. And I mean, so that's in the book. I think that had been out there before a little bit, but just the fact that he did that, um, just spoke to like how he operated when he was really mad too and wanting to send a message. It was just a, a, a crazy, crazy team. I mean, none of that even gets into the, just the crazy shit that a lot of these guys did. I, I ended up telling way more in the story about Charles Smith than I ever imagined I would, um, just about how much Pat Riley did not really see a fit for him, literally from the first day they were together in practice and him kind of calling that out and saying, like, I don't know if this is going to work. The fact that Charles Smith agreed in principle to a seven-year, 
extension the day after that game five against Chicago, um, which to me is one of the crazier things I've ever seen or heard and trying to understand why that happened. Um, after one of the most heartbreaking moments, I would say in sports, not even just Knicks fans, but just sports generally, um, of just like a moment that didn't happen for somebody. The fact that they locked him up on a massive deal immediately after that is like mind boggling and a deal that, you know, just kind of clogged what they were trying to do for a long time. So I don't know. There's a lot of stuff. I know that that's, I'm, I'm getting away from your original question, but I, I'd like to think there's a lot of stuff that didn't make the book, but I tried to make space for the stuff that I felt like I really had to make room for. And there's a lot of things in there. Man, it's, that's crazy. Uh, I can't wait to read it. So uh, for anyone that's listening, watching, make sure you guys check it out. Blood in the Garden, flagrant history of the 1990s. New York Knicks uh, so that yeah a great rivalry in the 90s and uh, it's it's clear that you've put a lot a lot of work and hours and, and blood sweat and tears into it so um, I won't I won't make you I know I know you probably enjoy like telling the stories but uh, I, I listen to every podcast you're on basically <laughs> so I've, I know you're probably as you mentioned in the beginning you know you're kind of caught between sick of promoting it and also feeling like this is your life's work in, in some ways that you, you know, yeah. you, you want to, you want to have it mean something. So um, I really appreciate you sharing a couple of stories with us on it. I wanted to talk about another a piece of work that you did recently. And I know I, you and I talked about this um, in, in DMS on Twitter, but the national perception of the bulls and their off season. And, you know, for example, like the, a lot of the wind predictions are coming out in the last few weeks and, yeah. Um, you know, like, uh, for example, like John Hollinger put 37 wins and 11th in the East. That was his prediction. Nate Duncan, I think, had 39. Um, Tim Bontemps at ESPN, he said, he said he wouldn't be surprised if the, if the Bulls were 12th in the East. And then you have an article that came out, <laughs> um, on August 6th, August 12th, you know, uh, like, you know, two weeks in the free agency. And you were really high on the Bulls. You, you said, hey, they, you know, they, they've got a chance to really do something here in the East and, and be a really good offense and, you know, a, a pretty pretty uh, consistent defense. You know, it's higher than a lot of people have said, you know, they're going to be bottom five defense or bottom ten defense. So I just wanted to ask you about what you see, uh, what you see as, you know, kind of a national perspective, obviously, being a Chicago guy. What do you see on, from the Bulls this, this offseason and, you know, having watched maybe a little preseason, I'm not sure. I know you're really busy, but having seen maybe some of the Bulls in preseason, how do you feel going into the season about the Bulls' chances? Uh, you know, since you wrote that article. Well, like you said, I've seen some of the preseason, and it, even with the stuff I've seen, there's so many guys that sit out. Um, that, you know, like how much can you make of all of it? Obviously, it, you know, as good a preseason as you could ask for, just from the standpoint of winning the games. I'm sure they would prefer to get that confidence under their belt. Um, the moments that I've seen don't surprise me a whole lot. I actually think they've been a little bit more active on defense, even than I thought they'd be. I feel like they're getting there, um, which is which is a, a positive thing to see, uh, Lonzo. But even Vucevic, and um, you know, I think we knew Caruso what he's capable of defensively. Um, been pleasantly surprised with Caruso's ability to kind of create a little bit for other guys and to find set up other guys. Um, but you know, the, the main thing I would say is like the offense doesn't surprise me. I don't expect that to be this long work in progress for them. Um, because I mean, they really fundamentally can and should at times be playing almost a five out offense. 
which it gives you a lot more space to kind of figure out what you're doing. You're not in a shoebox trying to make everything work the way that the, the Knicks of the 90s were or anybody else, you know, during that era. So I think that helps a lot. They're making a pretty concerted effort to push. I think every offseason you've got teams that say that they're going to try to play faster. I don't think there's any doubt that the Bulls are actually listening to that. And I think Lonzo helps a lot with that. Um, I think the fact that you could theoretically play four guard lineups a lot of times or four wing lineups will help with that because you've got guys that don't need to look for someone to outlet the ball to. So you did see a lot of that where they're, you know, not only are they playing faster, they're, they're, they seem to be more active. Again, the, the competition has not been great in the preseason. You know, when you play a Cavs team that's not playing Garland or Sexton um, or what have you, and, and then, you know, still playing a relatively tight game. Obviously, these guys are prideful. Um, so I, I don't know how much you can make of that. I do think it's interesting, though, that two of the teams that people talked about in the East and people vary very widely – they vary widely in terms of what they think about them, the Knicks and the Bulls, in terms of some people thinking that they're going to like scrape by just to make the playoffs and other people thinking that they could be upper echelon teams in the East. It is interesting that both of them finished the preseason undefeated. Um, again, does it mean much? Not necessarily, but I do think it's interesting that they both look pretty good. Um, so, you know, I, I, I still feel a lot of what I said during the preseason. I, I do think that I probably underestimated a little bit the lack of just just how many guys they have that'll be brand new to this operation. Really, that you're going to have a couple of guys that are back from last year, and that's it. Um, that you know that could play one of two ways. It could be hurtful for the Bulls from the standpoint of they have no cohesion, but it also could be interesting because there's also not that much to go off of as far as film is concerned. Um, some from the preseason. But again, the competition was just kind of whatever. And quite frankly, you know, Patrick Williams is, is just now getting back into the to the rotation. So, I mean, the, the different things. I, I don't know what to expect fully. Will they finish fourth? Probably not. Will they finish 12th? I, I, I don't see that happening. Um, it's more likely that they finish somewhere in between. Um, you know, I, I tend to think that they will find a way to make the playoffs. Uh, whether it'll be right at the back end of that, I'm not sure. But I, I, I feel really confident in the fact that they'll have a very good offense. Billy Donovan has traditionally done very well defensively and helped the teams defensively. But um, but I, I think, you know, in thinking about it more, I, I, I could see them finishing sixth, and it would not surprise me at all. You know, if they finished fourth, I know I'd said that maybe there's a chance for that to happen. I still think there's a chance. But I think that would be relying on some of the teams in the East to be a little bit worse than we're thinking that they'll be as well. Um, who knows how Philly plays out. But even if it's not Philly – Milwaukee would have to be pretty off target to not finish in the top three. Even if Brooklyn doesn't have Kyrie, they'd have to be pretty off target to not finish in the top three. Um, who knows with Philly? You know, I, no. they, I think they're the swing team for a lot of people, but I think people have a lot of reason to think that the Hawks will be good enough to be a top four team. I'm not sure about that, but maybe. And, you know, the Knicks are, are still right there from last year. Boston will be healthy again and we'll have some different guys in the flow and, and could be scary defensively so it's it's theoretically it makes sense that the bulls would be somewhere around six i think that that sounds right to me uh, if we're talking about expectations and hopes i do think it's interesting that nobody will put a single hope on this team and say exactly what they feel like is a win for them uh that's very interesting to me when they've added this much talent but you know i guess they don't see a benefit in you know marking on the wall and saying exactly how high they could jump mm, that's a good point 
Um, you brought up Billy, and I wanted to ask you, um, I, I asked Darnell this, Darnell Mayberry, when he was on here, um, but as somebody that covers the league nationally, um, what do you, are there any concerns you have with Billy Donovan and, and this team in terms of uh, him schematically um, and being able to put the right schemes in for this team? Is there anything, any type of concerns you may have for Billy, Don, for Billy Donovan? I'm sorry. Um, there have been times, I think, some of the stuff that I've worried about a little bit more muted this time, I think. They've got so much scoring now that I kind of feel like when you've got three guys that can score at the level that the Bulls have, um, that it, it's hard not to stagger those guys. And quite frankly, when I've watched just the preseason, the little preseason I have watched, he's already kind of been staggering them to some extent. That's something that I never understood when he had all the talent he had when he first got to Oklahoma City. Like, why aren't you staggering these guys more? Um, with, with KD and Russ. And so I feel like having three guys instead of two, you almost have no choice but to stagger them a little bit. And I think, too, um, the, having all the ball handling that he has really helps with that. The fact that Caruso, if he takes a step and shows, oh, I've always been capable of ball handling, I just really haven't been asked to do much of it, that will help a lot. That would be my concern is that I just kind of feel like Zach having to do so much by himself, they would hit these lulls because there was nobody else. I think hopefully the front office fixed some of that for him just by adding this much scoring and this much firepower. Um, I do worry a little bit that if they're not gelling quickly, that it's unclear what lever exactly he pulls. Mm. Um, it is a team that projects to be a lot better on offense than defense. Um, but you have a lot of guys that are used to being able to just kind of do whatever. DeMar can you know score and is going to look to score. Zach is going to do that. Booch is going to need his shots. There are going to be guys that kind of get squeezed out a little bit sometimes, you know, and that might be okay because maybe they're still getting their open shots off kickouts and other things like that. But what lever do you pull if and when these guys don't gel perfectly? I think they should be fine. But if for some reason they don't, how does Billy do something about that? Because if you are going to be a team that finishes somewhere in the six range, you can't avoid these skids. And you can't really avoid you, or you, you can't really afford the skids. And if they are going to struggle a little bit defensively, they've got to have it on offense. Um, so I, I, I worry a little bit about that. Um, or, you know, if they do have an injury to one of those guys, you know, how does Billy kind of make that work with the things that we're saying? Like, OK, he won't stack. He'll stagger guys because he's got enough of them to go around. But if one or two of them get hurt. Is that taken off the table? Does he kind of revert to some of the old tendencies where he wasn't staggering guys as much as he should have? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Um, and I love what we're seeing from Zach so far. And some of the national concern, which I thought was really unfounded, was this idea that Levine needs the ball in his hands all the time to be effective or that he's like a selfish player or a ball hog. None of those things have ever been true about Zach Levine. Is just, as you mentioned, he hasn't had anybody else just to take that scoring load. And now he's got, you know, Vooch and, and DeMar DeRozan that it, the stagnation on offense, I think we're going to see a lot less of it this year because if Zach doesn't have it, you know, you, DeMar can just drive to the basket, draw some fouls. Vooch can hit that open jumper on, you know, on the wing or the elbow or whatever that he's really good at. And 
they, as you mentioned, they got so many great pass passers between not only those three, but Caruso, Lonzo, Patrick Williams is a good passer. I mean, there's a lot of great passing on the team, and they finished out the season after the trade last season. They were they were really really good. They were like top five in in um, assists and just passing, and I think they're going to do so again. And um, the the defense though has been the 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 critical issue I think for for a lot of people, the sticking point for a lot of national people who. I think part of it is a little bit of an outdated view of how bad or good Levine is on defense and also Vooch. Um, I think that DeMar has, has a reputation as being a bad defender and he probably deserves it at this point, but Zach has really made a lot of strides in that area. And as you mentioned, they're able to play, you know, four guard wing size guys out on the perimeter and they've been able to switch things and be aggressive. They've averaged over 10 steals a game, all four preseason games. And I don't think they're going to do that during the regular season, but you know, they, they could probably be, you know, top five, top 10 in steals and, and transition points. And that really plays to their strengths with guys like Alex Caruso and Lonzo setting guys like Zach Levine or Derek Jones Jr. Um, you know, up, up, up on the break. So um, just wanted to see, I mean, you have obviously have a lot more connections than we do, but what do you think it is that's the sticking point on the defense? Like, why do they really think that the defense isn't going to be good? And and I don't think Bulls fans, at least the ones that we talk to, I don't think anyone's expecting top 10 defense, but I also don't think we're expecting bottom 10 defense. I don't think the defense to us is as big an issue as it's being made out to be. But what's what's your take or what have you heard on that from, from your colleagues? Well, I think, I, I think it's, one, I think it's that um, I think there is a little bit of a lag in terms of Levine. I don't think he's a great defender. I don't think he'll ever be a great defender, but I think he's, at, you know, I think last year was a better year for him, certainly. Um, I think he, you know, to me, he looked about average, you know, maybe a little bit better, sometimes maybe a little bit worse. Um, and could get lost a little bit from here and there. That was a tendency they had years ago. Um, so I think that there's a little bit of a lag there with his perception. I think really though, DeRozan is a lot worse than I think people realize on defense. Like he's pretty bad. And even just in preseason, when I was watching, I was like, oh, how's this guy? Oh, oh, it's because DeMar is not there. Um, so you see that a little bit. And um, you know, there's that. Vooch is not great. I mean, he, he, I don't think he's as mobile as when, when we talk about elite defenses or really good defenses or even defenses that you expect to kind of contend for top 10 and stuff like that. You're normally used to seeing them have a little bit more mobile of a center than he is. And I think normally when you have a wing player and a center that you don't think of as moving extremely well, um, or, you know, just DeMar and then some, you know, a center that you don't think of as moving extremely well. Uh, I, I, I think that's where the perception comes from. And I think it leaves a lot for perception wise for a lot of people, a lot for someone like Lonzo to clean up. Patrick Williams, I think, projects to be really, really good on that end and already shows smarts on that end. You know, like he, he's 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 very much like that guy that um that is like beyond his years. If you just look at kind of the way he just seems to fit, like he plays like a veteran, even though he's young in some ways, uh, and doesn't demand much as far as needing a whole lot of shots or anything like that. But but he's just kind of solid for especially for a young player. So I don't know. I I, I see how Fans think that they'll be better. I see how people think that they'll be worse. Again, I think it probably splits the difference a little bit, and it's probably somewhere in between, in my opinion. You um, you just mentioned uh, Pat. 
Patrick Williams. And something that I thought was pretty cool that I saw uh, in the final preseason game is Billy gave him some some uh, center minutes. Uh, and it was pretty cool to see it. I, I I didn't know what to expect from it because he didn't obviously he didn't have any of those minutes uh, last year. Um, but it, I thought he looked really good in those minutes at the five. Uh, they switched uh, on, on one possession. Um, he hedged really high, got back, boxed out Steven. I mean, I, Pat is 20 years old. And I mean, Steven was having problems boxing out Pat. And, and I'm, it, it was really great to see that because I think that's also something Chris and, and, and I have talked about on our show is like, yeah, we got some, um, it's kind of like opposite. Like last year, we didn't have any wing depth. We had a whole bunch of bigs. And now we got the wing depth and now we kind of got like some questionable um, big depth. So it's like, I, I thought it was pretty cool to, to see Pat uh, in some, some minutes at the five. I thought he looked good. So I, my, I guess my question is to you, are, are you in favor of that? Are you, are you interested to see what Pat looks like at, at the five? Yeah. I mean, to me, I would probably say this. I am. I think I'm almost more interested and intrigued by seeing just their lineups where they're playing four smalls. So if that means Pat being the five, if it means Vooch being the five, which obviously I think that's your most potent offense. But for what I was saying before about, you know, if you're worried that Vooch maybe isn't as mobile as you would like, I think it's worth trying Pat at the five defensively. I think he, again, might have more potential just to kind of be certainly a more mobile defender and maybe big enough to kind of handle that role. I'm not completely sure how it plays out, but I mean, I think it's worth trying uh, if you just want to be more mobile and more up and down uh, as a team. Uh, obviously, they've been trying to push the ball. It's been really kind of cool to see Caruso with the other guys um, because it's just a team that everybody can handle the ball, essentially. And if Pat is your five, uh, that's a pretty quick group and a group that all of a sudden – DeRozan notwithstanding, everybody else can defend and kind of hold their own pretty well. So it's a team that has a lot of balance to it. Um, and even, you know, if DeRozan is your complaint defensively, everybody can pass really well. Yeah. Uh, not that not that Vooch is a, a terrible passer, but everybody in that lineup, it, it's just a very versatile lineup all of a sudden that has more versatility with Pat there than it does with Vooch. So I, I, I've been really curious, just like if you end up going with these units that basically are four guard units, what does that look like? And if you add Pat to that, if you have Booch there, regardless, I think you'll be fine. But I, I, I think the minutes you, you can't. It's about this team is the depth to some extent. And, uh, you know, if you're using Caruso with those guys too much, maybe you're burning that depth a little bit because you want to just have him in minutes by himself to run the second unit, what have you. But I am interested to see it. And I do think it's something that come playoff time, could be a really nice tool for them if it's something that works during the regular season. I agree. I think one of the reasons I think we're both interested in that specific, you know, look is because really a lack of defensive versatility at that five spot. Otherwise, right. We got Vooch who's really, you know, mostly just going to play drop. Now he's played a little bit higher, um, closer to the level on, on some plays in the preseason so far. So we'll see if that, that holds, but he's not, you know, particularly mobile in that area. So I think drop is really going to be his base scheme. And, and uh, I think Tony Bradley as well is, is kind of involved in that. So they've tried Alizé Johnson at the five uh, while Tony Bradley was out with a back issue and Patrick Williams wasn't there. 
So he's he's a little bit more mobile. He doesn't really offer any rim protection, but he's more mobile. They and they were they were doing like switching one through five at, at certain points when he was on the floor. And then, but Patrick Williams, I think that's the that's the one because Patrick Williams showed a lot of rim protection skills in uh, in his college days, and I think that's something with his size and athleticism. I mean, I'm not sure if uh, Chris, if you saw when he blocked. DeAndre Ayton on a lob last season. Incredible. Very, very, very <laughs> similar to the one that Giannis uh, blocked him in the finals. Yep. Um, but Patrick Williams not only blocked it, just snatched it out of his hands midair and like started the break. And I, re- I want to say it was Booker that threw him that pass. And it was, yeah. it was not the greatest pass, but still, I yeah. mean, just the agility to make that play to get up there in the first place yeah. was, was really impressive. And I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying of why you might be curious to run a lineup like that out there. You might not, it might not be successful all the time. It might not be ready quite yet. Um, that's a big responsibility, particularly when DeRozan's in front of you, but uh, still, you, you know, you still might want to try it because it, it opens up some new possibilities. And quite frankly, if we're being honest, I've said this before, I think Patrick Williams is kind of their swing guy here. Um, yeah that if he can take a leap here, I don't see how the Bulls are even close to 12, the way some people are talking about. If other guys kind of just play to their capability and Patrick Williams takes a step, all of a sudden you're talking about one of the more interesting starting fives in the league at that point because you essentially have what I would say, and I think this is fair, three fringe-level all-stars in your lineup and you would also have uh, you'd have a, a point guard who is probably like one of the best just passers in the game and who's a good defender and who might be, you know, well, it'll we'll have to see in the next year or two, might be like a, a 40% three-point shooter. And then you have a guy that also is a rookie basically shot around that level who can defend. So, I mean, it would just be a team that would have crazy balance, a team that has three guys that can give you 20 a night, um, that, you know, one of the best passing units in the league that isn't a sieve on defense. DeRozan will probably try to make them one. But, um, (laughs) you know, aside from that, you feel pretty good about the other guys you have out there, at least decently, and a couple guys that you feel really good about. And particularly if if Caruso's out there as well, you know, maybe replacing one of them. So I – I tend to feel really good about it if Patrick Williams takes a leap and makes a leap and takes a step forward. It's too early to know that. Obviously, he was banged up for most of this preseason and recovering. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel like if he's really good this year, um, at least good for a second-year player, you have to feel really good about about the Bulls potentially outkicking their coverage as far as what the expectations are with this year. Wow. I mean – it, and honestly, Chris, like I, like me, we 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 try to look at a lot of film um, for our shows and stuff. And uh, I, I like to think that preseason like results are cool. You know, going four and zero is cool. Um, being in being ranking really high in either top five or first in certain categories is really cool. But I think it's more so about the process um, for how they're getting these shots. Right. Where is Vooch getting his shots? Is is Vooch, where is he screening um, on the floor? Are they running? What are they running offensively? Um, Lonzo's here. So how are they fitting the three new um, uh, Vooch, 
DeMar, Zach, Lonzo, how are they fitting together and offensively, right? So, like, for me, like, offensively, like you said, I think it's going just how we thought it could go. Um, and then defensively is where I never thought they were as bad as what people were saying because, I mean, last season, you know, we were, what, what 12th or something like that in defensive rating? Yep. So, so um, like, I didn't think it was as bad as what people were, were saying because you add Caruso, um, <laughs> another year of a pat growth, and then you add Lonzo. Uh, so I, I wasn't really feeling that. But at the same time, they really surprised uh, me in the preseason with how active they've been with the deflections and being in the passing lanes and um, really being active. And, actually, again, I try not to buy into – bit buying it into it too much but i just like seeing the pro i like seeing the effort i like seeing it you know um and i guess what i guess what i'm, I'm gonna i want to ask you is like if you had to take uh, to guess um like an educated guess um of where you think you personally think the 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 uh, bulls defense is this year um do you think it would be around the same as last season? Or do you think it, that DeMar is just is, is so bad that it can tank us a little, uh, it could drop us lower than it was um, in the past, uh, before last season, I'm sorry. Uh, and it'll be a cop-out answer. I think that I think they'll be probably about average. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wrote a story earlier in the off season, the one that Chris was referencing before. And I think I mentioned that it, I kind of did the whole two plus two equals four, you know, sort of <laughs> summation for the story. But, you know, I basically said, well, look, they were 12 last year and now, you know, they got Lonzo and they got Alex Cruz, so they'll be better this year. I mean, part of what they, part of the way they were able to thrive last year was, um, you know, Zach went down and Billy's response to that was, um, you know, was essentially to play two bigs at a time, um, which, you know, in some ways maybe neutralized Booch a little bit. Um, as far as, you know, if he's not maybe a perfect defender, having Tice out there with them can help and kind of clean up certain things. It's a different look than what other teams are going with. And so, it, you know, it might have helped them in some ways. And, and their defensive rating improved basically towards the tail end of the season, which was part of the reason they finished so high. They're not going to really have the, the rotation to do that. I don't know that you would want to anyway, given that you're going to have so many more capable guards and so much more playmaking. You want to play up tempo, so you probably wouldn't want a second big in there. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I think that I was probably a little bit too glass half full with the story I wrote, where I basically said, you know, there's no reason they can't be top ten. Like DeRozan by himself is a reason that they might not be. <laughs> um, you know, and and we'll see too. Like we'll see whether Lonzo makes it through a full healthy season. Yeah. Uh, we'll see whether or not um, you know the rotation kind of plays out a certain way. You know, we'll see. I mean, I, I could also see something where if DeRozan gets hurt, that their their defense could be better, but it still might also be a net negative for them as far as like not having all the offense they want to have out there. Um, and maybe it hurts them a different way if he's not there. It might help their defense, but might ultimately hurt their offense. So it, it's kind of one of those sliding scale things. But I, you could kind of talk me into anything. But I think. Somewhere right around league average, 15, 14, 13, 16. I could, I could see all that as a possibility. I'd be a little bit surprised if they're solidly in the 20s, if they're like 23 or 24. I don't think there's any way they're actually that bad. Um, 
But I also, you know, and some of that is their bench. So I think I like some of the guys they've got on their bench defensively. Um, where we were talking about Javante Green and mm. you know, certain people, Caruso obviously feel really good about. I think they'll be fine. I, I don't think they'll be anything special. I think if you're looking at this team, you're really hoping that they are just a juggernaut offensively where they're potentially a top five offense. That way, if you do finish 17th on defense, you still you're a lot better on offense than you are bad at defense. Like if you're like slightly below average on defense, it kind of reminds me a little bit of what Portland does from year to year. Portland yeah. can't afford to be a top three offense and a bottom five defense because it just it literally just balances itself out. It, but if you can be a top five offense and be like, you know, top 15, maybe top 20 defense, it's a different conversation. Then all of a sudden you're solidly in a conversation to win 46, 47 games, which that's nothing to sneeze at given where the Bulls have been the last few years. You could work with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we've got a bunch of people commenting here. Uh, Corey mentions, I, I think the worry here was Thad, Temple, Sato, and Tice. Those are all quality defenders for us. Sure. Although I'd say, you know, the direct replacements for Temple and Sato have been Lonzo and Caruso, which I think are, are upgrades there defensively and, and pretty heavily so with Caruso. I've actually been really impressed with Lonzo's defensive chops. They've been better than I anticipated that they would be. But the, I think Thad is the one that really kind of is is like was like the linchpin of a, a lot of our defense last year. But I do think that a lot of his effectiveness on both ends of the floor was kind of negated or, or kind of neutralized a little bit when Vucevic came here. He just you know because he played in that short role in the offense and he was kind of like the release valve for Zach and that the role that Vuce came in and played as soon as he got here. And then you know defensively, Thad played a lot of small ball five. And, um, you know, I think we had really, really poor dribble penetration <laughs> defense last year, poor point of attack defense. And so Thad, I think, was more, you know, more key to that unit because he could he could wipe out. And him and Wendell Carter as well kind of, you know, wipe out some of those mistakes uh, with their defense. But the, the activity level, as you mentioned, Javante Green, you got guys like Troy Brown Jr., Caruso, Alonzo. You got a lot of guys in the perimeter now that, are capable uh, getting around screens and just playing good point of attack defense. Hopefully that limits, you know, limits the, the, the losses of, of not having Thad. Although I would have loved to have Thad still on this team. I'm still kind of bummed. A whole lot of teams would like to have that guy. I bet. Yeah. I heard the Suns are, might be interested. Uh, There was a question here. I did want to ask you about Zach Levine. Cause I know you you mentioned, you know, he made it into that um, all-star conversation and got that all-star nod this year. But it's kind of considered that fringe all-star. So what would he have to do or what would the team have to do to take the next level? Like what would Zach Levine or the Bulls have to do for him to get an MVP vote at some point this season? Like, you know, where would they – I don't know if six is going to – you know, six seed is going to do it. But uh, And maybe I'm not asking about standing specifically, but what do you think the, that, that uh, Levine or the Bulls would have to do in order to kind of get in that conversation? You know, I think uh... – if I'm being honest, I think it would be really tough for him, and I don't think it's through any fault of his own. I think, generally speaking, when you've got this many this many guys that can really score and you've got guys that, you know, generally someone has to sacrifice. And it's interesting because it really hasn't looked like Zach is going to be have to be that guy when you've looked at the preseason and he's scoring 31 in 25 minutes or whatever he's doing. 
Um, so maybe not, you know, but it's obviously a small sample size. But my thought is that for the sake of trying to keep everybody happy and to try to help everyone gel, I kind of feel like more often than not, guys get wrapped up and they kind of get in their own heads sometimes where they – Russell Westbrook did this. Actually, Billy Donovan is a good example of, you know, seeing it firsthand. I remember talking to him in Oklahoma City where he felt like Russ was passing too much. I'm not quite worried about that with Zach, but my point is to say that there might be moments where he's not scoring quite as much just because there's other mouths to feed. There's another mouth to feed. Now, granted, DeRozan is a, a is a very, very good passer, great passer almost. Um, you know, but I, I just think with some of the other guys on the roster and, and some of the guys that will be left open that I don't know if Zach, if most of what makes Zach who he is, his scoring, and if that's what people notice about him is his scoring, uh, yes, it's possible for him to be in the MVP conversation, but I think the Bulls would probably have to be like a top three team in the East for it to happen. And assuming that doesn't happen, I don't think that his best attribute will shine through the way that it would have to for him to be in that car. I think he would probably need to average closer to 30 a game. And I just don't quite see that happening with more offensive talent on the team where he's less likely to score that many points. So it, it could happen, but I, I tend to think when a team gets an infusion of talent, I feel like guys are normally – they either are really bolstered in the MVP conversation because their team wins way more, like 60 games, or the, the numbers level out a little bit. The efficiency numbers pick up, but the, the, the counting statistics kind of level off a little bit because you're going to be sharing the wealth a little bit. So I tend to think that the latter will happen with Zach, uh, not that – I don't think the Bulls are going to win 60, and I don't I don't think that Zach is going to average 35. I think he's probably more likely to average a little bit less than he has the last couple of years. Maybe a little bit more through pace, but I don't think it'll be a whole lot more. So I'd be a little surprised if he if he gets considerable number of votes that way. Well, well, I, I can tell you that uh, <clears throat> through our our pretty you know pretty much a lot of our uh, recent episodes, people have really um, been ready to, you know, you know, get Zach out of that, that tier with, with, with Booker and Mitchell and those guys. So, um, you know, I, I, we, I think, I think we all um, would like to see Zach get to that level, but I think, I think it's like you said, you know, um, it's, I think he's quite fine where he is. Uh, obviously you want, you'd be fine to get more, but like, I think, with the team that you have and what he provides, like him being okay so far, it seems like he's okay with being off ball and being able to uh, have possessions where he can catch and dri- uh, with a live dribble and he, uh, attack closeouts or take open shots or catch and go right into pick and roll. Like he just, he just seems like he's okay with in the role that he is in. And um, I, I appreciate that honestly, because I, I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a contract year for him. You would think that maybe he wants to the ball a lot, um, but he's putting up buckets with um, not that many amount of uh, attempts. So, um, I mean, for their sake, too, I mean, it, he he says this. I don't know that I completely believe it. Everybody says it as far as as long as we don't win, I don't care about my numbers. <laughs> and he says it. And I, I, I do trust that on some level. I mean, he really has not won in the NBA. So I, yeah. I believe him a little bit. I do think he wants to have his cake and eat it, too, as far as. Who wouldn't want their team to be good and to have you know killer numbers? Um, you know, and hopefully for his sake he gets that. Uh, 
but I, I think the bigger thing that matters is just having other guys that can do it so that he doesn't have to. Because I, I do think, you know, if the criticism of him is that he's not a complete enough player, that he hasn't been a complete enough player, the number that I've looked at with him for years now is um, basically, and I remember I, I was talking to Billy Donovan about this a couple of weeks ago for a story that I'll have out soon, um, that Zach's numbers in the clutch, essentially when you know people are going to lock in and, and just double, throw a third help defender at him, um, Zach has not, he's yet to have a one-to-one, -one, even a one-to-one -one ratio as far as assists to turnover in the clutch. Yeah. Um, I mean, and quite frankly, there've been years where it hasn't really been close. It's been like one to three, uh, where he's turning the ball over three times as much as he's getting an assist. So, I mean, it's, it, it, he's had tunnel vision in those moments, probably through necessity because you, he doesn't trust who he's passing the ball to, you know, Denzel Valentine is, is trying to serve as a sixth defender um you know <laughs> whatever you know he's had his different things come up but it's not easy for him. so i understand that but I love that. now that excuse not that there's an excuse that he needed but that kind of goes out the window when you've got DeRozan, who could just as easily maybe even more comfortably in some cases kind of get a last shot or set up a last shot or at least make the defense play honestly as opposed to just kind of throwing everybody they have at levine so I think that sort of number matters, should matter a lot more than, you know, exactly how many points per game he scores, um, which might not, you know, be all that indicative of whether or not the Bulls are in a better position. To win. I guarantee you if Zach is a better passer and a better decision maker because he can make easier decisions mm -hmm. in those moments in late games, I guarantee you that will have a, a tighter correlation with the, the Bulls win-loss than the idea of like how many points he scores per game. Uh, and I think most people could probably recognize that this year. Yeah, couldn't agree more. We, we, Blair and I have talked about this a thousand times about how the, specifically in the clutch, as you mentioned, the turnover ratio, assist turnover ratio, and the fact that all defenses are keyed in on him. Yeah. And, you know, out of necessity, he he has to be the guy to take that last shot and hasn't had a lot of other options. But DeRozan has been one of the most – the most efficient isolation score in the league the last two years. Obviously, has a really, really high – rate of drawing fouls getting to the back uh, getting the bucket and then you know Vooch obviously is a uh, incredible score so they've got options so i'm really excited to see this year because last year in games decided by like less than five points in five minutes or whatever they were like 10 and 16 they were in a ton of close games and they just couldn't yep. get over the hump and that's i think going to be the biggest change and so with the mvp talk i i completely agree i think he has a better chance to make all nba but the really the thing that really really matters is the Bulls winning, and I think yeah. if the Bulls start winning and they just need to change a few of those things, if they could have just pulled out a few of those games in the clutch last year with a little bit more talent, a little bit more discipline, I think you're really going to see that record swing pretty hard. And now with all the talent they've got, you know, I think I think Bulls fans, I know national media can say whatever they want. I know Bulls fans feel really <laughs> good about their chances going this year, just being a winning basketball club for the first time and, and feels like forever. Um, so I know we've kept you uh, pretty long here. I wanted to ask you real quick, what other team other than the Bulls, who are obviously at the top of the league pass rankings, uh, <laughs> what other team are you looking forward to uh, catching You know, on league pass this year? Or, or what other team kind of intrigues you uh, in the East or the West this year? 
you know, I'm, I'm really, I don't know if it's a league pass team as much as I, I'm really intrigued by the teams where like you could tell me anything about where they'll finish. And I, you know, I wouldn't be able to like firmly disagree with you. I think the Bulls are an interesting one. Certainly I've told you kind of how I feel about them and written about that, but obviously a lot of people disagree. I think the Knicks are interesting for that reason. The team that I think about a lot that I find myself kind of not wanting to talk out loud about very much is Toronto because you could tell me that Toronto would be 12th. And I think a lot of people have them there, but you could also tell me that they'll like make the playoffs and I wouldn't know which side was up Um, because they obviously have completely overhauled over the last couple of years. No Kawhi. Now Lowry is gone. Um, But they, you know, they have guys that can step in. I think everyone's of the opinion that Siakam could play so much better. This is a team that, you know, for all the talk that everybody will have about how the pandemic really affected them and hurt them. I mean, Toronto was playing games outside their home country, you know, home games outside their home country in a completely foreign place. They started to pick it up a little bit in the second half. They also kind of gave several games away, not wanting to make the playoffs seemingly um, to, to be in the lottery. So I like, you know, Van Vliet is a completely capable point guard who, as much as I like him, he's one of my favorite players in the league. He has his flaws. You know, he's got stuff that, you know, he's got his shortcomings. He's one of the worst finishers in the league, um, you know, in terms of drives and stuff like that. Um, And has played next to Lowry basically his whole career. So it'll be interesting to see him holding that spot down completely by himself. But I also think the Raptors guys are like Sharks team, where one guy ages out, leaves, moves on, and then you have another guy that just replaces him. So OG Ananobi is one of the players that I'm most interested in seeing this year. Siakam is going to be very interesting once he's back. Is he healthy? You know, how does he look? Does he perform any better after a really brutal last season? Um, Boucher is fascinating to me. They've got so many guys with length on that team. So many guys that can just step out and shoot it. They, they made a draft pick that I did not see coming at all in Barnes. Uh, that'll be interesting for them to see how that plays out. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the Raptors, not because I think they're going to be this great team, but because they're just, I don't know what to expect from them. And I'm really, for whatever reason this year, I'm really intrigued more by the teams that are, you know, people have completely differing opinions on what they'll be or what they'll represent. And I, I think the Bulls, the Knicks, and the Raptors are all really interesting to me from that standpoint. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting that you said Toronto because – um, I'm a, you know, put aside my, 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 my fandom for the bulls. Like I'm a huge, <clears throat> a huge fan of OG. Um, and I think in the preseason, uh, in the games he played, I think there were some flashes of self-creation, um, uh, more than we've seen with him. Um, and if that, if that's any, any, any indication of what is to come, like, who knows? Because he's already an elite perimeter defender. Um, he can shoot the heck out of the ball, 40% um, from three. And if he can add that self-creation aspect um, with, with that flash that, that you kind of you've seen in the, this preseason, man, that, that, that's a, that's a player right there for them. And um, you add Pascal back, you got Fred Van Fleet, um, you know, <laughs> that's a tough squad, man. And, and it would be a lot of fun. And a team that has a ton of experience. I mean, now granted, with Kyle Lowry there, with Kawhi there, but um, I don't think you just get to write it all the way off just because those guys aren't there anymore. Uh, 
at this point. They've a lot of them have played in big big basketball games. So it's a, it's it's an interesting situation, and I just kind of feel like there's no sense whatsoever of how much a team would benefit or really be at a disadvantage with everything they had to deal with and, you know, probably being away from their families in a lot of cases uh, by having to play in Tampa, you know, like who, who wants to do that when you play in Canada? Um, shout out to Toronto because it's such a fun market and such a fun venue that um, really just, I, I feel like because it's not in America, it doesn't get the credit that it deserves. Uh, you know, and it, people forget about how cool it is. It's actually a whole. And yeah, anyway, neither here nor there. I, I'm very you. You could tell me anything with them, and I would I would hear you out. <laughs> but I, I I would tend to think that they're better than what people are expecting because you know, Lowry and 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 everything with that. But I think when they talk about the teams that really suffered during the pandemic, I think Toronto is at the top of that list. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you one last question about um, what, you know, besides this book coming out and you becoming a multimillionaire from it, obviously, uh, <laughs> what what is your professional goal this season? Like, what do you, what do you want to, uh, what do you want to accomplish or what, what skill do you want to develop further or, you know, that kind of, in that kind of vein, what is it you're hoping to, to do to expand your game this season? You know, I it's hard to say this two days before the season starts, but I, I don't even know that I'll get a, a complete chance to do it um, because of the book and because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching to a class this quarter twice a week for three hours each. So I'm completely tied up mostly on Tuesdays and Thursdays, all of which kind of makes me too busy to really focus. I, I, I haven't had a year where I could just focus solely on the NBA and nothing else since, 20, I guess 2015, maybe 2016. Um, the the year, even that year, like I moved back to Chicago and was trying to, you know, trying to basically engage myself in like a in a situation where I'd been in a long distance relationship and was trying to make time with my girlfriend at the time in person. So like, you know, I was just trying to make up for lost time with her. So I haven't really had a situation where I could just sit and watch basketball for years. Um, the book played into that. Uh, I started teaching. My dad passed away really unexpectedly in the middle of one of these years. Um, and then the book has just been like nonstop for years. It's basically been two full-time jobs at once. And now I'm still trying to finish the last little piece of the book, um, trying to market it, trying to publicize it right before it comes out and I'm teaching. So I'm still not in a situation where I'm able to do that. So I'm almost looking more at like the 2022, 2023 season is like when I'll be back and when I can just put everything down, hopefully. So if this book does well and I can do really well with it, the nice thing would be not having to worry about doing it. Well, I don't have to worry about anything. I shouldn't word it that way, but I, I can just focus it and I can just say, I don't need to do anything else on the side or don't even want to do anything else on the side for like one year. I'm just going to focus on basketball and, you know, maybe one day I could even put Zach Lowe to shame as far as how much basketball he's watching. No, I cannot ever do that. <laughs> you know, the idea of watching just a, an enormous amount of basketball, which I watch a lot already, even with these other jobs and with these other responsibilities. But I just want to get back to doing it. I, for years, what I've really wanted to answer your question is to be able to write really deeply reported features, um, not reliant totally on analytics, 
not even mostly on analytics. They don't have to have any numbers in them really, but just features on teams where I can spend a week and a half with them on the road and really kind of just immerse myself with them, watching them play, talking to their guys in the locker room, which the locker room access is not really a thing right now with the pandemic. But I always have kind of been jealous of those sorts of features. And I think that's part of the reason I've been conscious of my writing for years. I've never seen myself as a really strong writer, but the sorts of stories that I've chased ever since those Wall Street Journal days were always kind of more numerical stories. And so I think I've, this book certainly taught me, and I think I knew even before that, that I can do more than just number stories and do more than analytics stories and more than analytics pieces and kind of just have more of a human element to them or find interesting stuff. So I, I did one story like that, kind of, uh, when I first got to Sports Illustrated. It was about the Hawks and um, specifically kind of how long they had gone without um, having like an MVP candidate level talent. Mm. They've, they've gone... 28, I think now it'll be 29 years since the last time they had one of their players finish in the top 10 of the MVP race and the MVP vote. And it's like the longest in the NBA by more than 10 years. I think the Nets were the next closest team on that list. Uh, and even the Nets might have had one last year. I don't know where Durant finished in the voting or whether Harden finished somewhere higher up. Anyway, writing that and how it impacted their fan base in a city where they've got teams that they're in love with. The Braves were on national TV for years. So they have a massive following. Um, you know, obviously the Falcons, I feel like the NFL is the, you know, is the biggest sport in the country. So they have a massive following, even the soccer team in Atlanta, like sells out their games like crazy. And then you've got the Hawks who, you know, however you feel about Joe Johnson, they didn't have like a legitimate superstar and a bankable superstar that, you know, could sell products on television or sell products to commercials or anything like that. Joe Johnson was kind of boring. Uh, which feels unfair to say, but I think it was also true. So doing a story on that and talking to dozens of their fans and to their executives and to their players about how this past year was going to be an opportunity for them to finally change that with Trey and writing that on the, you know, on the eve of the playoffs and then watching them almost go to the finals was really cool. And, you know, looping into that story, a racial element about how the Hawks are weird because they're this team with all this culture but playing in a state that is very racially divided and, and in, a, in a city that is heavily black with an ownership group, at least as of a few years ago until the ownership changed, where the ownership was very blunt about the fact that they wanted more white fans in the crowd to help, you know, basically to make more money off of them. Um, and so worried that, you know, maybe they were too urban and too hip hop with the game ops stuff. Uh, I find all that stuff fascinating. Like my dad was a sociologist, you know, I'm someone that studied political science. That is kind of right up my wheelhouse, right in my wheelhouse as far as basketball, but also factoring in all these social concerns and social issues within it. I think that's what makes the NBA so fascinating really. And so writing more stories that dig into all of those things instead of just basketball or just analytics or just numbers or just, wow, this guy is shooting really well lately. I feel like I'm capable of all that, but it takes time to report those stories out to do a good job with them. And I really haven't had the time to do it. So I'm hopeful that maybe not this season, but after the book is out and after I really get a real opportunity to just sit and watch basketball and just sit and talk with basketball people or even people outside of basketball about what would make a good story or what stories need to be told, um, it would be really cool to jump back into that at some point and, uh, 
you know, I know I haven't had the chance to. The book will be obviously the longest form writing I've ever done. So it'll be different. I'm excited for that to come out. And I feel like hopefully this year will be an opportunity to just celebrate that once it comes out. But I hope next year I can just really hit the ground running with a bunch of different types of stories that people have not really seen me write many of. As someone that's starting uh, myself, uh, starting to write and, and trying to get better at um, getting my thoughts um, fluently in a piece, it, it, it is wow. It, it, it's crazy to hear the one Chris Herring say that he doesn't believe he's a strong writer. Like, like your pieces are so well put together and and just great stuff. So it's like, you know, it makes me feel like, you know, like Larry, like step up to the plate and and just do what you do what you need to do, you know, because wow, like I, I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, I know you're on the show, and I'm not trying to butter your biscuit, as they say, but I'm just saying that like, man, I, that's crazy to hear because I think you're a great writer and you do great stuff. And I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> these companies wanting you to be a part of their uh, business says a lot about that. So um, yeah, I, ju I just needed to say that. It's, it, it's, it's been great to have you on and especially for me because like, uh, not to make this a racial thing or anything like that, but it's always great to see African-American black people in sports um, writing and, and being, you know, beat reporters and doing different things, you know, and, and, and being successful at it. So uh, it, it's been great having you on just to pick your brain and, and you know, things like that. So thank you for uh, coming on. I really appreciate it. Man, I could not be, more appreciative of all that and all the stuff that Chris was saying. Of course, you guys would bring me into the podcast and hype me up the way you did and then have me go out that way too. You have <laughs> plan, but I could not be more appreciative um, of your all's patience. I know you guys have reached out to me several times. And um, as you can tell, obviously, I've, I've been still putting a lot of time into the book and really trying to make my way to, to everybody that's been, you know, just requesting to have me on. So thank you so much for for being patient, but um, I had a blast talking with you guys. I don't know what the hell happened with my camera, so I appreciate it. <laughs> but uh, you guys take care. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Many times that, that you are my your favorite sports are not just for the writing, but the way you carry yourself and and the example that you set in the way you treat people is just. A phenomenal example and so i never thought i'd be here being able to interview you on a, on a show that that, that larry and i run i mean it's 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 been a, a dream come true and one of my goals so um yeah keep keep finding a good fight with with zach Lowe. let him know you know yes. one of my other goals is is if zach Lowe wants to have us on his show talk about the bulls he doesn't have to talk to nick Friedel all the time he can talk to us instead so you know just I, let him know <laughs> chris can i get this in real quick I, 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 I <laughs> so I was listening to the episode that you were on with Zach Lowe, and it, it really got to me when uh, you were saying you can build something around Zach, and oh, Zach yeah. is like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you could build something around Zach. I mean, you could build a, a house on a crack foundation. I mean, that's something. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Zach. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, he had a he had a a pretty great season, man. And like, I'm not sure that this is exactly, you know this is the ceiling for him necessarily. I mean, he was playing with 
I won't say nobody, but he was not playing with these guys last year. So that it, it's funny that podcast that you're referencing, and I think I said this a couple of times during the podcast. I can't remember Zach and I ever having been more polarized in our views on almost every team we talked about. And it's funny because so many people say that they're such big fans of me podcasting with Zach. And, you know, Zach is just as gracious as you all are with me, where he says, you know, I'm the people's favorite guest, whatever. But, you know, I'm always stunned that people enjoy our podcast so much because we agree so much of the time. And I don't understand why people want to hear. I, I understand not necessarily wanting to hear Stephen A and everybody with him, you know, where there's just like these really seemingly sometimes contrived disagreements, which, you know, sometimes I think they're legitimate, but sometimes I think they're contrived. But I also think there's something to be said for like, it's not in, entertaining to hear people just be in lockstep all the time. And I feel like more often than not, he and I are. So the fact that we were in such disagreement over that one in particular, I've said, you know, from anyone to anyone that will listen that I think the Bulls are the team that are like most interesting to me because so many people don't think they'll be good. And, you know, I obviously listen when somebody like Zach Lowe says that, you know, that they're probably a little bit too overrated. Um, but for just the casual kind of average basketball fan, I really think that a lot of people miss the boat on DeRozan. Like, obviously, his defense is pretty bad. It's really bad. But I don't think most people have the a sense of the fact that like he would be most teams, a lot of teams' best passer. I mean, he's one of he's turned into one of the best passers in the league. Um, he's more efficient basically than he's ever been, regardless of where he's shooting from. Okay, he's not a great three point shooter. He also doesn't really take any of them. Uh, he also gets to the line basically at a rate that he never has. He also is shooting more efficiently than he ever has from mid range. So you can make stuff work with that. You can build a foundation around that. If we want to say it's Levine's team, okay, I guess, you know, if you can build a crack foundation on that, I guess, what do you, what the hell do you think the Bulls have been building around the last few years anyway? <laughs> so, I mean, like, it's a foundation of some sort. And I think the aim here, one, aside from just trying to get Zach to stay and lock in, is that if it's not these guys, you could potentially go do something else. I mean, these guys will have enough trade value to go do something else with them, get something else, bring something else in, figure out who can fit around Zach. But at least it's a good plan. And I mean, I think the excitement that you're talking about with the Bulls is exactly what I'm writing about later in the week is that, I mean, this is a team that has had the worst record in basketball since they traded Jimmy Butler. So at least they took a, a big swing, I think, um, to really improve the offense, which is something they needed to do. They've been decent defensively before. Now they've really addressed the offense. And you see where it goes from there. And if it's not good enough, I think you can live with that. It would be frustrating for Bulls fans, I'm sure. But you at least want to see them go after something. And it's been yeah. so long since they've even done that. So you don't want to, you know, give a pat on the back just for trying. But, I mean, I do think there's a universe in which this works, uh, where they, you know, they make the playoffs and they get around. Uh, and that would be a, a really nice start given, you know, you need Zach to play in some meaningful games like that. And, uh, you know, I, I think you want everybody to at some point. But uh, but I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes. I, I Like I said, wasn't a passionate disagreement I had with Zach. I think that they'll be better than he was saying. But, I, you know, at a minimum, I think I'm very interested to see where it goes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris. We, we kept you longer than we said we would. So I apologize. But it's been amazing. I wish I could talk to you for as long as you'd let me. But. It's late. I know you got a lot of things to do. I think my professional goal for you this year would be 
get some rest, man. You sound busy, <laughs> and uh, and I hope your students uh, treat, treat you well as <laughs> Northwestern as well, and that know what you're doing. So thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Lara and I are are just honored to have you, and um, I know the guys that are able to listen to it and 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 talk with us tonight are appreciative as well. So thank you so much, uh, Bulls fans. Make sure if you're not follow Chris Herring on Twitter, follow his work at Sports Illustrated. Check out that piece. When, when, when's that piece coming out, Chris, or when are you hoping to have it out? Uh, we've talked about kind of uh, hopefully that maybe – it's funny. We would actually talked about running it this week, and I was like, I don't think it's a good idea to potentially run a piece like that on the night that the sky could be playing for a, a title. Yeah. I don't think we want to have a preseason Bulls piece run as our cover piece on a day where this guy could be playing for – it would have been the game three, so it would have been Friday potentially that we had done it this past Friday. So we, we kind of backed off that just because I didn't even think it was a smart idea. Um, we may run something Wednesday uh, if, if we're able to, uh, if I'm able to finish the story. I really need to sit and write it. That's what I'm going to do as soon as we get off of here. But um, but I I, yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on. We'll have to do it again sometime. Awesome. Thank you. Definitely will. All right, guys. I'll see you guys next week. And uh, go Bulls. Open this week. See you later. Let's go!